This is episode 5E of Free as in Freedom. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. So Karen, you've brought us here together today for a topic you wanted to speak to us about. <laughs> um, I did think that it was a good idea to discuss Contract Patch, which is a new initiative that uh, we're working on around employment agreements in free and open source software. Okay. So I don't know anything. So, so Conservancy is now big enough that I don't know. There's projects happening that I don't know anything about. Did you? Well, I mean, I know generally. But I, I Obviously, I know generally about what it is. I'm not completely incompetent. To, to and, listeners understand, <laughs> I want to make clear that I am a competent employee. But I am not directly working on this project. You and uh, Tony are really taking lead on this project, right? That's right. And, uh, and Fred Jennings, who's a, a pro bono attorney who works with us, is also working on it, which is great. Um, I also note that you did not attend my OSCON talk about employment agreements, where I announced this initiative, because you were staffing the booth. That is correct. I thought you were going to tell me I was not doing my job. <laughs> I was so, kind of waiting for you to feel that way. <laughs> that's pretty mean. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, so I'll tell you what I know about Contract Patch, and you can tell me if I'm wrong and if there's other things that I should know. Because you have read our, our news items, or no? Or our blog posts. If I say no, do I still have a job? <laughs> <laughs> I have not read the blog post. I oh, did help okay. you post one of them, but I did not actually did read you? it. Well, I, I did. I posted it on the other places, like the, the get it on the, oh, oh, the, okay, the mailing okay. list and that sort of right, thing. Right, right, right. But I just cut and pasted it, and I made sure the first sentence and the last sentence were right, and it looked about the right length, and I didn't read it. Good. So it's a process of discovery. Okay. Okay. Are employees of Conservancy required to read all blog posts of Conservancy? <laughs> we don't have that many, so... <laughs> <laughs> I have not read... There are two blog... I know I'm aware that there are two blog posts on Conservancy's website about the contract patch initiative. Mm -hmm. I'm aware there is a mailing list. I am on the mailing list, but it goes to a folder I don't read. Um, <laughs> it hasn't been very active yet. Uh, so, so, listeners, the general idea is that... Uh, so. So one of the common things that people who are contributors to free and open source software encounter are agreements in the course of their um, engagement and employment in uh, uh, at new jobs. So when you start a new job at a company, one of the first things that the company is going to ask you to do is to sign a contract that sets out the expectations for how you'll, uh, you know, how that employee-employer relationship is going to um, be structured, and also um, has a ton of legalese in it. Now, like many of the terms and conditions that you see uh, that are, are that you're asked to agree to regularly, uh, it seems. I think there's a lot of pressure to simply sign, um, sign on the dotted line, get it done, click agree, I accept. Um, but unlike a lot of these terms and conditions that you'll get served, uh, that you'll see, I was going to say get served with, but that you're presented with online where either use this, you know, either um, agree to these terms or you can't use our service. Unlike that, with employment agreements, there's almost always an opportunity to negotiate to some extent. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, 
And so the talk that I gave at OSCON sort of went through some of the major employment agreement provisions and uh, and talked about what things you should be concerned about and um, and what you should be asking for. This is something that's come up quite a lot since I've been involved with free and open source software. Um, I'd say that I'm asked about uh, questions regarding employment agreements just all the time, like certainly not not quite as much as licensing or trademarks, but uh, but shortly after that, I would say that uh, employment agreements are right after that. And so I think that uh, everyone sort of needs to be aware that there are terms in these agreements that could not only impact what you do in the course of your job at that company, what could happen in the case that, you know, you get a different manager or things change at your company, not only impact what would happen when you leave that company, but also could impact what you're allowed to do outside of your employment. Well, since it's our show, uh, I'm going to immediately ask you a mostly off-topic question and <laughs> tangent for a while. So, you mentioned the the how terms of service uh, when you use one of these horrible online services uh, that exist, uh, you, they're never negotiable. You either can agree to them or not use the service. That's your only option, basically. Uh, they're not going to answer any of your calls or requests to renegotiate mm -hmm. them. But with employment agreements, that's not so. Do you sometimes think you can get a side letter depending on who you are for terms of so oh well yeah Very like a company like a Very large company that wants to mm -hmm. use Facebook might be able to get Facebook to agree mm -hmm. to a side letter yeah I agree I, yeah but that that's such a rare incident it's and I have gotten companies to write an email to me saying that the particular thing that I was worried about was outside of the scope of the terms of service. Yeah, but that was acting on behalf of a, a no, no. Some I once did it personally. Really? Yeah, well, that's impressive. But rarely happens. But it's very rare. So it was a small thing. So the the question I have is whether the has the culture of click and agree caused employee well two two things i see two things that i'm, I'm going to ask you if you think they're happening one is that employment agreements are much more complicated than when i started i got my first i as most people know i have a a dirty dark history of doing proprietary software development early in my career <laughs> and when i graduated uh college uh, we called it the university most of the world uh before year degree i got my first job in 1995 and the contract i had to sign was a one page basically letter and it had a confidentiality clause, but it was relatively vague and it didn't have all that much in it. It basically said, you will be working for us and the work you do for us will be ours, right? Which is one of the things we want to renegotiate in some of these cases. But now these agreements are much longer. And when you mix that with the click and agree culture, of pe most people have agreed to terms that they've never read, mm -hmm. um, which I have basically almost never done myself. Um, is is that culture causing it to be that people just don't even think that they can renegotiate them and they're much more difficult to negotiate because they're longer, right? I mean, it would have been much easier to, if I had asked for any changes to my, but the only thing I asked for change about were salary. Um, but if I had asked for changes, it was a one-page letter we were negotiating, not a gigantic employment agreement. I mean, I'm sure most of these employment agreements now are hundreds of pages, right? I mean, I think that click-through agreements, I mean, the, I think there was a study, and I, I maybe you even were the one who told me about it. I haven't read it uh, directly or read about it, but there was a study that showed that if you took the time to read all the terms of service for the services that people typically use, it would take you so many hours that you 
you know, it just simply wouldn't be practical. Was that? Yeah, there was a researcher who was on NPR who who had spent a legal researcher who had spent um, six months studying the I believe the Facebook agreements. Um, to, uh, he read all of them over a period of six months and <laughs> and actually reported on uh, the report's actually pretty good I, I actually tried to find a link to this and so I couldn't find the audio online of this it was on it was on the you know daily NPR show here in the US um, the, uh, the the interview was done as the guy invited him invited the NPR reporter to his office and then started having started saying things to him like so you agree that if you sit down i can record you right and okay you agree let's do it like basically doing all these things that you automatically agree to with facebook to enter his office like he had all these things by entering his office you've now agreed you know all these things yeah it's funny what people so i'm i've been really surprised at the evolution of click through culture and the way we've you know if you had asked me in law school when i read about there's a, a concept called um uh like if an agreement is unconscionable uh, and like whether or not a person could possibly understand that there were terms and conditions that that uh, they were agreeing to and uh, and that they could conceivably understand what those provisions meant and agree to them. If you had asked me after I had gone through that section of contract law, if these kinds of click through terms of service would be um, enforceable, I would have said probably not. Um, and this actually sounds like a final exam question that contracts professors probably ask now on, sure. on contracts exams. Actually, I'm, I'm sure, except that uh, except that now all law students surely know that they're enforceable. Um, but it's still a good question. And it started with like shrink wrap licensing. Sure, shrink wrap licensing was found to be enforceable, which is that if you r removed the shrink wrap from your purchase from your software, it it was uh, you you agreed to it. Um, and taking away the formalities from contract agreeing takes away the seriousness that people the weight at which people give the to consideration of those terms um, an example of this is that for outreachy we had um agree we have agreements in place uh that mentors sign and ever for, and, for our listeners for possible too. new listeners we are trying to increase our mm. listener base outreachy is a, a project for underrepresented groups to become involved with open source and free software development that is run by the software freedom conservancy please continue there uh the remotes are the the internships are paid and remote and really cool you should check it out but um, you were saying these internships they are agreements with the interns this is a part i actually pay attention to all my work just so you know <laughs> boss that i pay attention to this part but please continue you're working that angle a little hard on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh but uh yeah so uh so when we had those agreements i often uh, you know i i the way i used to do most of my agreements is that uh is that while electronic signatures are are enforceable in the united states and in most other jurisdictions i pushed for a uh, they call it a wet signature so like an actual ink to paper signature um, on an agreement in order to make sure that the person had read it and so adding this formality of having an ink signature and then scanning that contract and initialing the pages meant that people would pay more attention to the terms and it was interesting because we would get people asking questions all of the time about the provisions and some people would a few people would try to negotiate it and we sometimes the, actually you know we do everything like a free software project so i you know we iterated on the agreement to make it better um you know that's kind of the natural thing that we do but what we found was that so we we got we we wound up moving to uh to electronic signatures in many instances for conservancy paperwork including these mentor agreements and now we never get any questions on it and it's it's an interesting state of affairs when there was a long thread on a pub on a public mailing list about one of these agreements um you know, a few people pointed out 
that the granularity, that the things that people were objecting to were things that they regularly were agreeing to as part of the use of services uh, that regularly. So basically things that, uh, that Conservancy was asking for to protect its liability. Uh, actually, it may have been GNOME at the time. But, uh, but the or organizing entity were asking to just basically protect its liability for what people, what, you know, what volunteers would do that they couldn't control. Um, and, 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 and clauses like that, that, um, that, Folks were were hesitating over signing it, and then uh, other people on this thread were pointing out that uh, that if those people had used Facebook or Twitter, they had agreed to much more onerous terms. They just had no idea they had done so. So, I, so, and this is why I'm asking the question in this way. It, it is a tangent, but I don't think it is because I I feel like it, two things have happened. So, I have not had a, a formal contract. Um, or actually, we'll talk about that later in the episode. That maybe I will soon. Um, but uh, for conservancy, but um, but I have not had a formal contract with an employer since um, since basically that first job, actually, um, uh, 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 which was in 1995. But when I compare what I signed in 1995 at my first job to what I've seen people presented with from employers, it's gotten many, many more pages. Um, actually, what I typically see is it, it's see, it's secretly long in the sense that uh, I had a, a colleague uh, show me, a colleague in the free software community, show me an agreement that he was presented with uh, from, uh, from his new employer and it was one page, so it's like, oh, it was just like the one I signed in 95. No, but it included four different documents by reference, which mm. are, he's agreeing completely to those documents, and those documents together were a couple hundred pages. And so, that's what happens also in these terms of service. Uh, that was Bradley's phone making. I apologize. We, uh, so I'm using a, uh, to, for the listeners, because we're not going to bother to edit this out, uh, the, I, I'm using a new uh, timer so we know how long our segments are going. Uh, but apparently the timer has a, a deadline setting that I didn't realize. So uh, that was strangely uh, uh, there. So I will fix that. It sounded that. Like, a, like a bakery bell, like a well, bakery it, ring. It, like it's a bakery. designed. So it's a, it's Which a, makes me really it's want a cookies. free software uh, presentation application for, for mobile telephones that uh, I got from the F-Droid uh, to really go off on a tangent now, um, <laughs> and apparently it's uh, it's it's designed for um, doing uh, lightning talks. So that was the ding for switching lightning talks or something. So At thirteen minutes, oh, for a fifteen uh, minute yeah, talk. Yeah, so I now need to turn off all these timers. Uh, that's what I'm doing now. So please continue. I apologize for the interruption <laughs> you were saying about. Uh, but I really want cookies. Okay, so uh, yeah, where were we? Um, Oh yeah, and that's exactly what happens with the Facebook and and uh, well, and it's it, I don't mean to just pick on Facebook because there are like pretty much all of the um, the online service providers are like this. They all incorporate other documents by reference, and what by reference means is just that uh, in the provision in the contract itself, it says uh, this contract incorporates all of the terms and conditions that are stated in these other documents that are not part of like, they're not physically part of the contract at the time you know you don't they're they're not an additional you know the, if the contract ends it uh, it's not an appendix or anything like that but they're incorporated by reference and most people don't click through to see what those uh what those separate policies are because to do that often those policies incorporate other policies by reference so it's just this kafkaesque ever-increasing body of terms and conditions that you're agreeing to simply by using the service and clicking through the check the checked box and it's just not practical for people to read everything uh, i i feel like there has to be some kind of tipping point on this where 
um, where we step in and reevaluate whether the laws that we have are right in protecting individuals who are not lawyers and not savvy. Even as a lawyer, I find it difficult to read all the terms and conditions that I'm presented with. If I want to use the internet in a hotel room when I'm traveling to a conference, it takes time to read all the terms and conditions. And it's, you know, if I have other things to do, it's very difficult. And it's basically to do anything at all, you need to agree to terms and conditions. If you need want to book a flight, if you want to use your bank, if you want to, you know, your, your anything. I was at a conference once where uh, the uh, internet access uh, required you to agree that no work, nothing done on the network would be commercial activity, which meant anybody who worked for a for-profit company um, probably violated that when they connected to the network and did any work at all. I, I was I was sort of glad that I was I actually thought about the work that I was going to do for Conservancy that day and decided that it was all non-commercial work. Well, commercial as a term is also uh, disputed in terms of what people expect it to mean and what it means is a legal meaning. Some have argued that all work done by charitable nonprofit uh, on behalf of charitable nonprofit are. Uh, uh, it would be non-commercial, but that's probably not exactly right either. So it's it's interesting. Well, and in a lot of these cases, the uh, so the reason the reason the contract situation for your employment is so much more important, a- admittedly, than the click-through agreements, is that the uh, the the two vectors of problems in your life that the click-through agreements tend to cause is you've given. Uh, you've given the uh, the entity the right to use your personal information in ways that surprise you, or you live under penalty of termination of using the service. And both of those things are are usually not disasters. There's certainly disaster situations for people in both directions. Uh, the classic thing of the latter is when people are using the Google Maps API and don't realize that you have a bandwidth limitation. If you exceed it, they suddenly turn you off and your website goes down. Uh, so that's a you know, really big commercial damage that people have, has been documented in the press that people have suffered. And the first one, there are certainly cases where people's personal information has been on these sites and they've faced various different danger because of it. But that's not the default situation. In most employment agreements, though, the default situation when you've agreed to it is you've given a tremendous amount of power to the employer, right? I mean, most of these agreements, uh, Karen, you you can confirm because you actually worked on this and wrote and or read the blog post that I didn't. Um, But these agreements are generally really onerous, basically. I, I'm going to use the word onerous. There, I did it. Most employment agreements are onerous. Yeah, Is I, mean, that right? I, I would argue that a lot of these terms of service are also onerous. And the only reason why it's worthwhile to bring the two up together is that I think that the click-through culture of agreeing to terms has desensitized us to the contracts that we agree to. And we assume that whatever is served to us is not subject, like is not available to be negotiated. Mm-hmm. And we assume that we're not really gonna understand it and that it's just gonna take too much time. And because you agree to so much just to live your ordinary life, that what's another agreement that I don't read closely? But for employment agreements, that could be a real disaster, especially if you care about free and open source software. That was the point I was trying to make, that it's it's relatively rare. I, I actually have some examples. I, they've been mentioned on other uh, other of our podcasts um, that there are cases where some of these agreements can be so onerous that they are really problematic. And I think that most people don't, don't end up having any worse penalty imposed upon them from the agreement other than being losing the access to the service. Uh, but in the employment situation, because the employment is what you're going to spend most of your time doing, it means it's covered. So here, here's a good example uh, I, I'll give from my own life. So I, um, I actually am a party to, I, I created a Google account for a very specific purpose that I used for one specific purpose. And I don't use it very often. Karen and I were just arguing this very day earlier. I 
didn't want to make use of my Google account further, in part because the expansive amount I use it, the more that terms cover my activities, right? So if I if I log in my Google account once a month or once every, actually it's more like once every three or four months uh, to basically, basically the only thing I use is Google Alerts. I'll admit to, I've actually made it publicly, I use that uh, in other places. So um, so when I'm do, getting my Google Alerts, I'm under the terms and service of Google, but I'm not in my email because I don't use Gmail. So I don't uh, have a situation where all of my email activity is governed by the agreement with Google. It's not. Um, it actually is governed by the agreement with my VPS hoster because my email, my personal email server is on a VPS hoster, which I've read that agreement. And I know that it doesn't actually impact my, uh, my, my usage. The reason I think this relates to the employment is that I, I think you're right that the culture of click-through and non-negotiability of agreements have caused people to expect that they just have to accept terms that a lawyer wrote. And I'm going to be my little anti-lawyer rant. I'm so offended. Well, because <laughs> I think people have this air that somehow lawyers know something they don't and they have a that I I noticed that developers in particular but the general population um, too trust lawyers to understand this stuff better than the normal person in a way that for example people don't actually trust me to understand technology better than most people i actually find they don't they don't think i'm you know mainly because i tell them it's just broken or whatever but um, <laughs> but i i think people have this automatic trust of lawyers and they're not even your lawyers right it's not even like anybody and i want to get to this hires their uh, generally people don't hire their own lawyers to negotiate their employment agreements yet the lawyers on the other side you're an adverse party right when mm -hmm. you uh, you're adverse to your employer i think that's going to sound weird to some people so you should probably explain what it what that means yeah, I'm um, so I mean, it is as it as it sounds, right? You are you're when you're negotiating with another party. So the moment before you sign the employment agreement, you're not an employee of the company yet. Instead, you're someone that the company is negotiating with. And so your interests and the company's interests, what you want and what the company want aren't identical. And in some ways, they could be in direct conflict and clashing. And so uh, you need to looking for your own interests at heart and a lawyer has an obligation to its own client to represent their interests so uh, in the case of an employment agreement if you wound up talking to oh, you probably wouldn't but in the ordinary course if you didn't raise any questions but if you raised uh, if you had a conversation with a like a lawyer at a company that you're working with about your employment agreement that lawyer would be obligated to represent their own company's interests. Now, that lawyer would also in the United States be obligated to tell you that they were they were representing the company's interests and not your interests and uh, probably would at least as a throwaway say that ask if you were represented by a lawyer and if you said you weren't they might say they might encourage you to hire counsel um but most people, when I say that too, they kind of like, they're not really listening to me when I say it, unless I really say, no, really, maybe you should get a lawyer to look over this. When you say you should hire a lawyer, people are like, yeah, right, whatever, it's just an employment agreement. So, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, where, where you might not realize. So, so the, it, in launching Contract Patch, we're doing a series of blog posts that talk about these fundamental ideas around employment agreements um, to help frame the issue for people to think about when they are going through the process of negotiating um, their employment at, uh, at a new job. 
And also, our, we're working on uh, on standard contract provisions so that uh, because we see the same things over and over and over and over again, and we'll maybe get to some of those things um, later on. But uh, but when developers want to raise these points, if they can't afford their own lawyer, or they you know they're they're kind of at a loss as to how to. I mean, some people are 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 not. So I'm making a generalization, but many people are at a loss to how to even raise the issue. And so what we're looking for is to is to write some standard language that people that's free software specific that people can bring you know can bring to their employer and say oh i'd like these clauses added to my contract and that way they have some confidence that they're asking for the right things but also in a way that the companies can understand and potentially accept one of the strangest things that i've noticed and i actually think so so people have accused me of being uh being uh, being anti for profit company uh and what i'm about to say is going to sound that way but in fact it's just the company looking out for its own interests in this case um and it's what any negotiator would do so i want to be clear about that when i say that it's not an evil behavior it's a behavior in their own self-interest uh, which is problematic for the uh potential employee and the behavior that i'm talking about is this i I think that, and this goes back, I, I read when I graduated college, What Color Is Your Parachute, which is this famous book in the United States about uh, l l building a career. Um, it was hugely popular in the 1970s. Uh, when I started looking for jobs in the 90s, it was still considered a gold standard, I, I think less so now, uh, of, of how to how to learn, because uh, a lot of the advice it has is, is very old, old you know, pre-technology. Uh, but uh, one of the things it talks about is the is the uh, the the there's this focus on salary, and I think employers try to get you to negotiate only about salary, in part because there are so many other things they want to get you to agree to that they they focus on that. So I remember the book explaining that the benefits package is very important, I and mean, that was the thing people ignored uh, when they first looked at jobs. That you have to actually run the benefits package in the U.S. Uh, and this is going to sound bizarre to our out of U.S. listeners, uh, but your health insurance benefits are usually provided by your employer if you're in the middle class in the United or, or, or or higher in the United States. And as such, you actually have to compare two job offers to see, are the am I going to have more out-of-pocket medical expenses if I take this other job? And does that change the salary um, details? And so people, when they look for jobs, forget to even look at that. That's just that's actually just part of your compensation. Uh, and, and things like vacation days, like if you get more vacation days, you're actually paid more because it means you have to work less to get more money, et cetera. So people tend not to even look at that, let alone these other onerous terms that are hidden deep in the employment agreements about who owns your work and controls your work or what you can work on on your own time indeed and outside of the state of california in the u.s uh it's actually very easy to get someone to agree that everything that they do on their own time on their own equipment uh is completely owned by your employer right uh, so we have so so far we have published two blog posts the first one by fred is step one everything is negotiable i believe it's entitled mm -hmm. and the idea is that first the first step is knowing that you can negotiate your agreements and uh and i would say that uh this is often a revelation for people they don't realize that uh that this is uh this is the case and uh i would even go so far as to say that when uh you know when i was and I say I say this in my uh, in my second blog post, which is step two, um, understanding the power balance. Um, in law school, we even learned that you want to draft a contract stronger than you need it to be, so you have something left for negotiation. So sometimes these agreements are 
uh, are are stricter, significantly stricter than the company from a business perspective needs them to be. But first of all, lawyers tend to be conservative types, and so they are. Their entire goal is to protect the company from every possible imaginable thing, and they're going to basically say no to most things unless they are compelled to have a reason to say yes. And so the agreement reflects that culture and reflects that negotiating position on behalf of the company. So many times the agreements are have terms baked in that the company is already prepared to give you, but you have to ask in order to get them. And oftentimes you can treat these provisions as if you're, you know, as part of your overall negotiation. So, uh, and this is sort of, I think, what you're talking about, Bradley. Well, yeah, I, I'm talking about that somewhat, but I'm also talking about the fact that uh, the, the, they're banking on the fact that nobody looks and that they get all this power mm -hmm. uh, by default. And uh, and they use the fact that, oh, a lawyer drafted it, so it must be good. But it it is probably good. It's good for the company. It's not necessarily good for you. Uh, most people I know who work in the technology industry do not stay at the same organization their entire careers. That, the, that mm -hmm. rarely happens anymore. Um, even my father, who was a software developer, ended up not staying at the same employer his entire career, um, although he almost did in a way. Um, but that generation is gone. That's so unlikely, which means that you have to think about what is happening to you while you're there and how it's impacting your larger career. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm particularly concerned about the amount of copyright, and I think this is strategic on the part of the companies that contribute to free software. They are amassing copyright interests in free software projects that were historically controlled by individuals. And I have discovered there is basically, even with people that you will see me and Karen having political disagreements with, there is widespread political support and agreement among software developers that individual software developers ought to control their own copyrights. It's very you would you will be hard pressed to find somebody who isn't a representative of a for-profit company and as as their primary activity who will not agree with that. This is this everybody agrees this should be the case. Yet no one is working on that problem except for Karen and Tony and Fred basically. There is no one out there trying to help developers make sure that they keep their own copyrights okay, on free right, software. Because like all of these provisions if if we accept this culture, this click-through culture of, of, of believing that we are or, or of not thinking that we can negotiate our agreements, then we just take these terrible term, these terrible boilerplate, boilerplate is what they, uh, is the, the term of art, the legal term of art for standard provisions. We take this boilerplate that's presented to us, you know, we're, we're, it makes it that much harder to negotiate it as time goes by. The more employees that ask for um, for provisions in their employment agreements, the more likely it is that everyone will get them when they ask. And it's 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 one of those those uh, those interesting things. And I uh, I've I've found that uh, pretty much every time I've participated in a um, you know either given off the cuff advice uh, to people or um, or had my own agreements every time that an, that that someone ha that I've seen has asked for a change in their employment agreement, some changes have been made. And this, I think, surprises a lot of people. But if we ask as a community, then suddenly it becomes attractive to companies to modify their employment agreements to attract better talent. But we have to we have to sort of get past that threshold. And um, what I think people don't realize is that you can engage in this negotiation, even though, as we said, it's potentially an adverse relationship. It's very easy to have this conversation in an extremely friendly way. Like you 
I have it, it's unheard of to me that anyone has nicely asked for a change in their employment agreement and um, and lost the opportunity of their employment over it. It's uh, I if, as long as you're friendly and say, you know, I've noticed these provisions and that seems a little bit onerous to me. How about we modify it? So it says, for example, that I keep my copyright or or even something as small as what I work on outside of the scope of my employment belongs to me. Right. I mean, that's that's that should be unobjectionable to anyone. Right. Uh, but but even no matter where where on the on the um, spec, you know, on, on that whole uh, uh, line, people ask for changes. If uh, no matter what the result is, there's there's a friendly way to do it. And it's a you know, it's it's not a deal breaker pretty much ever. And plus, you can always blame lawyers. So I'm actually, uh, weirdly, I'm going to reference what color is your parachute again, <laughs> um, because it's basically everything I know about negotiating uh, employment uh, agreements, I learned from that, uh, because, you know, the, they, when I'm older than most of our listeners, and so in mm -hmm. my, my age, they, I, of course, I was being advised by people who were in university in the 60s and 70s, so they passed along the advice that was given to them, because that was the book in, like, 1975 of, of getting a job. So they all re had read that book and then recommended it to me, but, that you know, another generation has gone by and people don't bring it up as much but i remember a graph in that book as a polynomial graph that showed what your leverage is in negotiating a hiring agreement and of course if you go into the first interview and you start talking about like what salary you want and what terms you want in your agreement that that's tar that the, the polynomial is like right down by chances you'll get it chances you'll get the job is near zero you wait to ask about those things until the moment where they really really want you to take the job and then you start raising the issues and you do it you have to time it perfectly so that you're doing it just the right time before they before they want to give up on you but after they actually really want you um, and it kind of go the curve goes up and then drops off again uh, to the yeah, to this the is what bottom. my my second blog post is about which right. is that you never have as much negotiating power as the moment right before you sign the employment agreement because your employer has gone through so much effort to find you and to choose you as the next employee they've interviewed you they got comfortable with you they have now envisioned how their work environment will be with you on their team and 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 once you reject the job and once you um sign the agreement that's when that graph drops off to zero again because it's you can't finished. ask for anything. You, yep. you, you, if you've if you've decided to to move on, or they've moved on and offered another candidate, or you've you accept the term, you accepted it, it. You're done. There are opportunities, and we're going to discuss that in a later blog post. There are opportunities to renegotiate your employment agreement, but it's very unusual, and mm -hmm. uh, or it's somewhat unusual, and uh, and it's much harder to do. But if you think about the terms of your employment agreement along with your overall compensation package, then sometimes employers might be happy to give you some of those provisions if it means that they can, you know, if they feel like they like you really probably do deserve a little bit more money, but they don't have the budget to give it to you. Mm -hmm. For example, they might give you some of these provisions um, as just a way to make you happier. And, and everyone walks away from the table feeling a little bit better because um, because there's been movement in the in the in the contract. Yeah. And, and money and one of the problems we have in the tech industry right now right now is money is cheap, right? I mean, there there is a tremendous amount of VC money kicking around. There are some very wealthy company tech companies hiring. I mean, look at look at the best performing stocks in the US. You look at Google and Apple. So there's plenty of money. So giving you more salary is always very easy for them. These other things you ask for are hard. It depends on the company, to be fair. A lot of people True. work in free and open source software work for companies where they really have to have limited budgets in those departments. Yeah, you're thinking of things like the Red Hat and the Egalias and so forth that are known to pay yeah. less. But most tech companies that, and see, the thing is, is those companies are most likely to accept these other terms. 
um, in part because money is not such a issue for them. Mm. I'm sorry, money is it, money matters to them in a sense, in a way that it doesn't to. I, I mean, I think I think when you have a company that basically has a license to print money, like like a Google or Apple at the moment, um, it's much more difficult to get other things because because they, they'll just want to offer you more money as a, like how much money will it take for you to not ask about this uh, is something you're going to hear from a company that's wealthy that wants to hire you and i and the other well, you might get more money by asking for other terms <laughs> yeah but <laughs> i was going to say it never but i hope people will not will not give up their free software <laughs> copyrights in exchange for money yeah. but if you but if you were considering signing that agreement anyway true uh, which many people are to be pragmatic. Now, I was going to say it never hurts to ask, but this is actually a little bit more complicated. I learned a lot from the women don't ask uh, and that all that material, which is to say that uh, that generally employers respect you, managers respect you more when you advocate for your own interests, which creates a better working dynamic for you in the long run. So actually asking for these things in employment agreements sets you up much more for success and for being respected by your manager. Um, so it has that added benefit too. But it's a little bit more complicated because sexism sometimes cuts the other way. So you have to be sort of, there's a lot of good information about how, um, I assume that, that other kinds of, uh, you know, other issues related to sexism play out in similar ways. And so you just have to sort of like, you know, you, as Bradley was saying, I think you have to, um, be careful about your timing and your tone. Um, and I, I don't want to, like, it's totally not acceptable that this is the case that when women ask for, uh, for the same things in the context of negotiating employments that employment that it's uh, interpreted differently and uh, and more negatively uh, and that definitely needs to change and at the same time that is what the situation is right now so I advise women in that position to uh, to you know be even more cautious and just you know but it's it, but for men and women alike it is very worthwhile to ask um, I wouldn't you know I'm so I'm nervous to say it never hurts to ask uh, but uh, but but the benefit it's very much outweigh the downsides but you have to go in with your eyes open and think about it and that's why we've published these blog posts um, and so one of the one of the one of the reasons I haven't jumped into this project with Karen and Tony is in part because there's kind of a, a inscrutable problem that I I see with this that I think nobody knows how to solve yet um, and it's basically a trailblazer problem right now some of these requests that we want to ask for in free software are not regularly asked for so it's very rare in the larger tech industry uh, so I'm talking about including proprietary software developers which is most software written these days is proprietary it's, it's, a, it's a fact of the matter um, despite how big open source is open, <laughs> don't believe the hype open source has not won most code being written is licensed in a non-free way um, but because of that it's very rare for anyone to walk into a tech company I mean other than a Red Hat or an Agali or, or somewhere like that and say one of the things I really want as part of my compensation package is the right to keep my own copyrights because mm -hmm. in the end it's part of your compensation project because uh, uh, package because it's a, it's an asset you're generating uh, from the point of view of the ledger of the company you're generating assets which are copyrights because they they're viewed as assets and that's an asset they have to give to you and you could license it to them rather than rather than giving it to them but uh, it's interesting because rockstar developers often are able to keep their copyrights and those would arguably be the most valuable
valuable copyrights that the companies own. Well, so it's something that's on the table. I, I'm it's not, on the table, I, I mean, and I'm I think you're, well, well, I, I got to cut you off, Karen. You're, you're, you're th- this is, uh, so I, 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 I'm going to go off on a major tangent here. I think you are overvaluing these, these rock star projects. Well, that's leaders. what I was about to say is that I don't know that, uh, the, actually, studies show that the rock star developers' um, contributions are not, not as valuable as people think that they are. But in terms of, uh, if the company is willing to move for what they perceive as to be such valuable employees, then that means that they are probably willing to move for other employees. In other words, if it's part of the, I know they're willing to give more because they find that those those contributions so valuable that they're willing to give it. But at the same time, that means that they consider those the most valuable and they're willing to let those programmers keep their their copyrights. So right. it we, follows we, that it's on the table. It, it is negotiable. But I, I think uh, I, I want to make sure listeners understand yeah. that, that the, this perception of 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 rockstar developers who do get to keep it because they're project founders and so forth and a great example is jeremy allison who's on our board of directors and is a samba developer and he has an agreement uh to keep uh, i want to get back to another point but but i want to go a little further on this right now uh he he keeps his own copyrights uh for samba uh as an employee of google and uh, he negotiated that as part of his agreement, which is rare at Google. And, and, and anybody who works for Google will tell you that, that they probably don't have that in their term. And you might argue that, well, he's, because he's a famous developer, he was able to get that. I think Karen's point is correct that we don't actually know. And this is sort of my point about trailblazing, that we don't know how difficult it will be. It's clearly difficult for people asking now to get this out of companies, even a Google, for example, where we know it's been gotten before. The more people that ask for it, the easier it will get. Another point I wanted to make related to Samba is that Samba developers have generally had tremendous amount of success about this, thanks to early in Samba's history, Jeremy and Tridge, uh, who were the project leaders at the time, set policy that they weren't going to accept corporate copyright into the project for various reasons. We actually did an uncast a long, long time ago mm-hmm. about 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 that, which uh, which maybe we should do again. Well, we'll we'll talk to Jeremy about maybe telling refreshing that story in our in our in our uncast uh, format so people can hear it again. But um, that uh, that incident that caused them to say we really aren't comfortable with corp with non individual copyrights in Samba meant that if you wanted to get patches upstream, you had to have uh, an individual copyright and mm-hmm. had a corporate copyright for a long time. They, they've relaxed that policy in recent years, but it is still the default uh, and preferred uh, solution in Samba, uh, which means that there is uh, there, 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 there are many, many individual copyright holes in Samba in a way there aren't in many other projects. Most projects now are reaching a majority of for-profit companies holding the copyrights and deciding about the licensing of the project, deciding about policy of the pro- holding the copyrights is the power in these projects. But when you negotiate your next job and statistically in our field that is going to be relatively soon because <laughs> people move jobs a lot just ask just ask about holding your own copyrights and be friendly about it and if your company says no then they say no and you can take that if you want and move on but if if everyone starts asking or if a lot of people start asking companies are going to start getting the managers are going to start getting the message that this is something that would give them an edge on recruitment yeah, I, I think that's right. I think we need to create it like uh, we did with contributing to free software. There was a widespread agreement uh, among all developers in who have con- ever contributed to free software that they were going to make sure they were allowed to contribute to their free software projects. And that melded into companies actually kind of expecting people to upstream code, right? That, that, that process happened because developers... Uh, 
it, not not directly, but indirectly banded together because many, many developers looking for jobs all decided at roughly the same time that they were going to start insisting that their employers let them contribute upstream. We have to take that a step further such that uh, because companies have figured out that, well, you can contribute upstream, but we want we get control. That That's actually allowed them to control upstream projects in a way they didn't used to be able to historically. So we need to shift the balance of power back to the individual developer. And there's widespread agreement. E, like, as, as I said, I, I've yet to meet anyone who's who's a, who's in to policy of free software who doesn't agree with this. I mean, if you know somebody who actually thinks developers shouldn't individually keep their own copyrights and they should all be given to the companies they work for, I have heard people make that argument, actually. Uh, you've heard, you've heard developers. No, I've you've heard, heard industry lawyers make that argument. Oh, of that course, argument. because they represent the companies, exactly. right? I mean, exactly. I'm not anti-corporate. Uh, Linus, who has accused me of such, uh, and others have as well. Uh, it's companies are acting in their own self-interest. Of course they want more copyrights because it's in their interest. They don't even necessarily know what they want to do with them yet. They just like to amass assets. They like to you know, put you know, lots and lots yeah, and lots this, of things this, in their little fort. There are actually a lot of different uh, aspects to this that we could tease out. Um, this is quite complicated, but it takes us a further away from this yeah. question about employment agreements. There's actually, there's there's a lot we still need to discuss here, and I think as we progress with uh, with the Contract Pact in Initiative, um, we may have more discussions here about it. Um, right now, we're working on a series of blog posts to cover these fundamental concepts, and then we're going to work on some of that form language, which will cover some of the the particular provisions that, uh, that we talked about. There is an LWN article also covering my OSCON talk, and I believe the OSCON talk has been posted online by Oscon. So O'Reilly. Um, so so the contract pack mailing contract patch mailing list. What is on topic for discussion on that mailing list? It, can people talk about like these side issues? Is it just to give feedback about the the text you're going to write or the blog post? Like what what can you give us sort of a list of what's considered on topic on contract patch mailing list? Um, so we're just getting it uh, getting it started now. Um, so uh, we launched it when Fred posted his blog post. So uh, the idea is we'll keep you informed if you sign up uh, for that mailing list. What's going on? Actually, I never did email the list about the last blog post. I better do that. Um, uh, and then also a place for people to discuss if they so choose. And we can spin off another mailing list if it turns out that the traffic's too high. Okay, so pretty much anything is on time. Anything goes. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, code of conduct, of course. But, I mean, uh, I think sort of talking about... Uh, any topic is on topic. I mean, I think sort of talking about employment agreement provisions that you would like to see covered by the Contract Pact Initiative, anything raised by the blog posts that we've put up. But if people, I was thinking mainly that, well, I'll just ask specifically what I'm thinking, at, wondering is it on topic? If people want, are willing to discuss, I realize people won't want, might not want to discuss this publicly, but if they want to discuss publicly things like strategies of how to convince companies to let you keep your own copyright and negotiation tactics and those sorts of things. Absolutely on topic. We also could think about uh, organizing a private mailing list if, uh, you know, non-archived mailing list for people who want to discuss those things not so publicly. But we, we don't have plans to do it right now, but if, uh, if folks have an interest, we can do it. So uh, one final point I want to make. So, so, um, so I've made a mistake with my current employer uh, that I want to tell you about um, because uh, – and, 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 I, and I will reference – You're fired. Um, no, okay, kidding. that's fine. Wait, you said – you shouldn't say things like that to people <laughs> who work kidding. for you. I'm kidding. I'm kidding because you know I'm kidding. Okay. 
All right. Well, um, because well, so, you said you were going to talk about a mistake you made, and your- oh, I made a mistake. So, um, so the mistake that I made was uh, that I I have an agreement with my employer that is not in writing. And if you were if you were old like me, you and you watch te- and you watch television when you were a kid because you didn't have any friends like me, um, <laughs> you remember the uh, the commercials during the after the first or the, actually the second breakup of AT and T, where there was all these other long distance companies, and there was these series of commercials where they were all trying to poach each other from customer bases and the series put it in writing 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 I, I will find some audio <laughs> from one of these commercials to to put at the end of the show so uh, I have an agreement that I keep my own copyrights but uh, Karen you didn't put it in writing I thought we did but we no we didn't we, we can didn't. Def- I'm committing so publicly here that we can revisit that right so uh well i was mainly because i was I've, supposed uh, to draft i have something. in writing approved i've confirmed that this is the case when you put your own copyright notices on work that you have suppose done in the context you, no, of your not exactly I, I think that i would probably lose a court case if i end up having to sue conservancy for my copyrights which i don't think i'll have to <laughs> but relieved I, to hear it i don't feel that i have what i need to survive a, a lawsuit uh, if, if we got into if, if my employer and i got into dispute about who holds the copyrights on my work done at conservancy i hear somebody's working on some draft provisions right. you could use so so <laughs> i so I, I i think i think that that's it's really important because i have met developers who say oh yeah they say i can keep my own copyrights and they've even put their own copyright notices in but it's not papered and if you're in the US, the default is what's called work for hire, which means by default, if you are employed as a regular employee, right, in, in the US we call it a w, regular W-2 employee, you have virtually no argument to say that your work is your own copyright. There's nothing you can say, basically. And I know someone who got a verbal agreement from a lawyer at the company they were going to work with that this was going to be the case, and then the company got acquired and that lawyer was laid off. Put it in writing. <laughs> I so. guess that, that wraps up this show. I think it's something we're going to probably revisit. There's a lot to talk about. So join the mailing list. The uh, mailing list is, Karen? It's what contract is, patch. So so go to lists.sfconservancy.org yeah. slash mailman slash list info slash contract patch or you could just go to our website and read the blog posts and there's a link at the bottom that's true yeah there 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 was a on the on the now defunct uh old linux uh, what, what was that old show called that john o'bacon did that doesn't exist anymore they had a whole segment about trying to read off mailing list URLs because all the mailing list URLs are always list.domainname slash mailman slash list info slash name of list. Yeah. Um, which well, is what we use mailman, so there it is. There it is. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Free as in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of danlynch.org. That's D-A-N-L-Y-N-C-H dot O-R-G. The Free is in Freedom theme music was written by Mike Tarantino and is performed by Mike Tarantino with Charlie Paxton on drums. You can learn more about our work at the Software Freedom Conservancy at the website sfconservancy.org. Conservancy is a 501c3 charity and is supported by your donations. An RSS feed for this show is available from faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot U-S. All episodes of Free and Freedom are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License. Don't take their word for it. Have them put it in writing. So I said to the guy, uh, let's put it in writing. <laughs>
Guy says, excuse me? 